Egyptians and Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and Israelites did not approach each other that night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. Thanks, Toby. Uh, Well, it's a special Sunday today. Not only have we got youth takeover, um, but we've had communion and we're going to have a baptism as well. So we're celebrating both of the sacraments. And I think that's kind of exciting. And you should too, because you're members of a Baptist church, right? Baptism is supposed to be important to us, right? That's implied in our name, New Peninsula Baptist Church. There's no such thing as like, Mornington Communion Church. Um, Nobody names their denomination around Lord's Supper or Communion, but we have named our denomination around baptism. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about baptism. And usually, when we do that, the first story we jump to is Jesus being baptised. We think to ourselves, oh, baptism, that's a New Testament thing, right? And we baptize, we fully immerse believers. Why? Because Jesus was fully immersed as a believer, as an adult himself. Um, And this is true. Jesus was fully immersed uh, by John the Baptist. um, And that's recorded for us in both uh, Matthew and in Luke's gospel. Um, But I want to suggest to you this morning that baptism in some sense, doesn't begin with Jesus and John the Baptist. It is true if you type baptism into your um, search engine or into Bible Gateway, um, you'll only find that word in the New Testament. But there are some clues in the New Testament that actually there's an Old Testament heritage to baptism. And we're going to begin there before we work our way back to the New Testament. Um, So let me read to you firstly from Matthew 3. This is the account just before Jesus is baptised. People went out to him, him being John the Baptist, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. So we're in the south of Israel. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. I'm guessing you've probably rushed over that bit to get to the part where Jesus is baptised. But let's just pause and think about that for a moment. Jews are going to be baptised. There's baptisms happening. What do you think John's doing when he baptises them? Do you think he puts them under the water and says, I baptise you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. Because Pentecost hasn't happened yet, right? That's three years and 50 days away, right? And Jesus hasn't died and hasn't risen And John the Baptist doesn't understand that Jesus is going to come and die and rise. 
And so he won't be talking to them about being washed by the blood of the lamb in baptism. And yet they are practicing a baptism of repentance. Jesus' public ministry hasn't yet begun. And so in some ways, we might think of this as the last little bit of the Old Testament. And they are practicing baptisms. Isn't that fascinating? And then we've got a couple of clues elsewhere in the New Testament. Here's one in 1 Peter 3. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, So Noah and his wife, Ham, Shem and Japheth, his three sons and their wives, that's eight, were saved through the water and this water symbolised baptism. Wow, what Peter is telling us here is that the story of the flood, Genesis 6, the world is rebellious and sinful and Lamech boasts about how many people he kills. And Genesis 6, 6, we read that God was sorry that he's even made man. And the flood is symbolism of the washing away of sin. This is baptism. It's the same spiritual symbol. And eight people are washed and remain and they are baptized And they come out to a new life on a cleanly washed earth. And the promise and the the instructions that were given to Adam and Eve to, you know, produce and, um, and, and to rule. And they are reaffirmed and baptism is the core symbolism that's meant to be um, understood. That's one. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, that is, Paul here is talking to Jews, our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea, they were all baptised into Moses. So there's another story of baptism. And here, Paul is talking about communion. The part that I read out, before communion comes from 1 Corinthians 11, right? So in this part of Corinthians, Paul's talking about the sacraments. And here he's informing us that baptism is there in the Old Testament. That as the Israelites went through the Red Sea, that in some sense they are baptized. Wow, fascinating stuff, isn't it? So both of the sacraments we're going to celebrate today. So we heard from um, the youth uh, about the connections between the Passover and communion. Let me just reaffirm those. Israel were enslaved in Egypt, right? They're under Pharaoh. And uh, we read in the New Testament in John's Gospel, for instance, that, that those who sin are slaves to sin. Or Paul talks about how sin entangles, right? So just like Israel was enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to sin. Uh, And in the Old Testament, God judges those who do not worship him. Uh, I don't know if you picked up the reading there. um, But part of what's going on is that God is going to demonstrate to Egypt that he is the most powerful God. So... We think about nations and and governments and political systems 
as being there to serve the people, right? So um, our Prime Minister and the politicians are there to organise education and health and roads and whatever else we need as citizens, right? That's the purpose of being a nation, right? But... That's not what's going on in the ancient world. That is a modern thought, our thought. In the ancient world, nations existed to bring glory to their gods. And so the most powerful nations were a witness that their gods were the most powerful gods. So for instance, when Daniel and his three friends get taken off to Babylon, Babylon is a glorious city with the hugest um, idols and towers anywhere in the world. And this is um, prehistoric propaganda. That's what it is, right? Our gods are so impressive that uh, they've, um, they did, the Babylonians didn't even think that humans built their temples, right? The gods came down and built their temples. That's how big they are, right? And that's what's going on in Egypt. Um, the Egyptians are saying... Well, our gods are the most powerful gods, and those Jews, they're just slaves. They're the underclass. Their god is nothing. Um, We don't need to listen to their god or to his representative Moses when he comes to us because our god is more powerful. Right? Uh, God judges all people who don't worship him. And so we read in Exodus 12, 12, that God will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. This is about who you worship, who you live for, who you represent. And if you live for the Egyptian gods, then you will be judged by him. But here's a dilemma. Israel is in some sense tainted because they've been living amongst the Egyptians. They are defiled. And we discover that when they go out into the desert, actually they want to continue to worship uh, gods and idols in some or other form. Um, So... Uh, God judges those who don't worship him, and likewise, God judges us. In fact, uh, we read in Timothy, sorry, in Peter, 1 Peter 4, that judgment begins with the household of God. God judges us as well. And so there's a dilemma. We need to avoid judgment. And how does that happen? Well, in the Old Testament, by God sending a saviour, and it's Moses. Moses leads God's people out of slavery and likewise Jesus is the saviour who leads us out of the bondage of sin and slavery and into freedom and the book of Hebrews makes much about this um, that Moses is not just the guy who saved Israel but he is a foreshadowing of Jesus that he is a type of Christ next slide and so when you kind of get these messianic Like accounts of Moses, they are foreshadowing what Jesus is going to be like, right? So, we're still, what's happening in communion? God sends a saviour and God sends the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And likewise, um, what does Moses go and say to Pharaoh? He says, let my people go so that they can come and worship me. God invites his people to live a life of worship to him that will reflect his greatness. And likewise, Paul in the New Testament talks about in Romans 12, us being living sacrifices where all of our life worships God. So can you see there's just a whole lot of connections, all the big spiritual themes that we celebrate every time we do communion 
take cues from the Old Testament. They're all foreshadowed there in the Passover. So, Moses is going to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go and worship me. But there's a problem. The Israelites are defiled because they have been tainted by the idolatry of Egypt. So how can they come out of Egypt and worship God, right? Before Israel can worship or encounter God, their sins must be dealt with. Now, I just need to emphasize this, right? Because you, as 21st century readers, you don't naturally read this into the text, We don't think of people as inherently sinful or under judgment. That's just not the way we're trained to think anymore. But that's what's going on in the text. There's a problem. These are a defiled people who've been called to worship. How can a holy God come in contact with a defiled people? Let me try and demonstrate that for you with some diagrams. Next slide. Remember, Israel is unclean because they've been tainted by having lived in Egypt and by being in proximity to idols and idol-worshipping people, and they've done a bit of it themselves on the side. And in the Old Testament, when the unclean or the defiled comes in direct contact with the holy, you die on the spot. That's what happens, right? And so how is it that Israel is going to leave Egypt and worship God at his holy mountain? And the answer is, next slide, they need to be purified, they need to be washed, or to use New Testament language, they need to be baptised before they can encounter God on Mount Sinai. And that's what happens at the crossing of the sea, of the Red Sea that Israel as an entire nation is baptised and they move from being unclean to being clean. And if I just want to push that metaphor a little bit further, next slide, then what happens is they spend 40 years in the desert and they cross another river and have a second baptism experience, although it's another generation, um, Uh, Only a couple of them made the first crossing. Um, And now they are able to enter the promised land. And as is the theme of the book of Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. That's what Israel is called to do when they live in the promised land. To be holy and to reflect the holiness of God and in the process be a light to the nations by being holy. And how do they move from being clean to being holy? From being in the desert to being in God's promised land? And the answer is by another baptism experience. So that's what's going on in the Old Testament. The, the, the theology, the spirituality of what happens in baptism is there. It's, the, the word isn't used but it's there in the Old Testament. So let's jump back to 1 Corinthians 10. For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. So when we celebrate Tom's baptism in a moment, as we think about what does baptism mean, I want you to hold this image in your head. I want you to think about unclean, defiled Israel who have been tainted by the sins of the world um, and by... 
by their proximity to that, coming through the Red Sea, coming through those waters on either side. And one of two things can happen when you come into the waters of baptism and you are defiled by sin. And here's the first option. You could be like the Israelites and they go down through the waters and by the grace of God, they come out the other side and they have been transformed from defiled to clean. So they have died to their sins, but they rise a new life as the people of God, ready to go to his mountain and to worship him. That's one option. Or the other option is you could be like the Egyptians. That is, you come under judgment and you go under the water and you die to sin and you don't rise. That's just it. You just die. Because after all, the punishment for sin is death. And they've been an idolatrous people, the Egyptians, and they are deserving of God's death. It's kind of like the first half of baptism, but not the rising to new life. Does that kind of make sense? Isn't it fascinating the way that the Old Testament sets these themes up in narrative, in story? Um, so that when you read about this stuff in the New Testament, you're meant to go, oh, that kind of makes sense. I've been set up to understand that because of the way the Old Testament narrative works. That's what's meant to happen for the Jews. That's why they get baptism. They get it's about repentance. That's why John the Baptist can baptize and people are streaming forward for baptism even though they don't yet understand that Jesus will die and Jesus will rise and somehow that's the fulfillment of where baptism is kind of going. All right, so what have we seen? That there are some connections between crossing the Red Sea and baptism. God's going to judge all of those who won't worship him. Everyone who deserves judgment and death will in some sense come under judgment, but by God's grace, some people will be led by a saviour through a baptism experience and will come out the other side to new life. And in the Old Testament, that's Moses. And in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is one greater than Moses and he leads his people through baptism into new life. What we also see is that baptism is a sign that Jesus has washed our sins away. That the sea washing over us or the immersion in the waters is a sign that Jesus cleanses us, that we have a clear conscience, that we are right with God. And because we have been cleansed with God, because we have transitioned from defiled or unclean to clean, now... Baptism is a sign that we are raised to a new and to a holy life. And just like it was Israel's job to be holy as God is holy, so it's the church's task to be holy as God is holy and to reflect what it's like when people live with Jesus as their Lord, when they worship God and obey him, when they live in relationship with him, when they are his people, then we are called to be a light to the nations and to reflect his goodness so that some might see God and repent and be saved on the final day. That's now our task, the task of those 
who are baptised. And lastly, God invites his people to come and to worship him. That's what's going on in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Uh, You come through, you go to the mountain and you receive the law and you worship God and in thankfulness you obey the law. Obeying the law doesn't save you, but out of gratitude you live in a relationship with God in a holy way that is pleasing to him and that affirms the fact that he's your father. So that's what's going on in the New Testament and how the New Testament baptism picks up themes of the Old Testament. But we still haven't quite got to today. Why, why, why do we call ourselves a Baptist church and how come that's such a big thing in the Baptist tradition? And so I just need briefly to take you to the 16th and the 17th century. So the Reformation happens and Luther and Calvin are saying, no, 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 we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. And they begin to uh, reread the New Testament and discover all sorts of things. And there's a guy called, um, so we're in the time now of um, uh, Henry VIII and then after Henry VIII, um, Elizabeth I. Um, After that, or in that era, there's a guy called John Smith. John Smith, uh, impressive name. Um, And he is a man in England, and I think he goes off to Cambridge. Um, And then in 1602, 3, 4, um, as he's reading his New Testament, like um, Calvin and Luther are reading their New Testament and thinking how, how have the Catholics kind of got it wrong and where have we misunderstood some things and, and where are we being too much like the Old Testament Christians and whatever else. John Smith decides that actually we need to push a little bit further. Because as he looks around, what he sees is that in the Church of England in the 1600s, Everyone is a Christian. Everyone is a member of the church. The church service on Sunday morning is called public worship. And everybody in the village who's born gets to be baptized or gets to be married in the church or gets to have a funeral in the church. And, and, and as John Smith reads his New Testament, he says, hang on a sec, that doesn't sound like what's going on in the times of Jesus. Uh, faith is not nominal. Faith is not something that everyone has. No, there's something about being genuinely repentant, about making a decision, about taking up your cross and following Jesus. That's what it means to be a believer. And he sees a gap between what's going on in the Church of England and his own experience of church. And so he starts talking about how um, the, the genuinely repentant need to be a separate body of believers, right? We're a subset. We are separatists as Christians. We are called to be holy, to be set apart. That's what the word holy means. And be a light by being different. And the nominal Anglican church of the day wasn't necessarily very godly or very holy. Um, And so kind of those Puritan overtones are sort of in there as well. Um, Now, John Smith is unfortunately persecuted for that sort of teaching. And so he flees to, of all places, Amsterdam. Because as it so happens, Holland is the most socially progressive place in the world already in the 1600s. 
This is not something new. This is a long tradition. And wouldn't you love to go to a church in a Dutch bakery? My goodness, I would. I'd be a member of that church tomorrow. Um, Tom Irvin is going to celebrate his baptism today. And it strikes me that there is so much in common with the themes of John Smith. And that is that today we don't experience nominalism, but we experience anti-Christian culture. And in that culture, yes, there is a cost to standing up and saying, I follow Jesus. You need to take your cross and follow Jesus when you choose to be a disciple of his. And you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that you are repentant and that your sin is a problem between you and God, that God is a God who judges and that you need to believe in Jesus who through baptism and his death and resurrection has paid for your sins, washes away your sins and can rise you to new life. And themes like judgment and sin and forgiveness are very, very politically incorrect themes today. And so there's a sense in which we are separatists when we take seriously the claims of Jesus in the 21st century and we say, yep, I want to stand up and I want to be a follower of his. And just as John Smith wanted to emphasise the decision, so too we acknowledge that for even someone who has grown up in a Christian family, to get to a point where as um, a, a younger person or as a teenager, um, and Tom's not quite a teenager yet, but you say, you know what? The faith of my parents is not just their faith or my family's faith, but actually it's my personal faith. That takes some doing in today's world, doesn't it? Just like it would have in the 1600s. And there were people who were drowned for being Baptists um, uh, in, in other parts of Europe. So I'm going to invite Tom up onto the platform, actually. And I'm going to ask him a couple of questions before um, we celebrate his baptism. Yeah, welcome, Tom. Tom, we met during the week and I asked you a few questions by way of preparation. Um, so why don't you share with us what you believe and what you understand about God? Well, I believe that I understand that God created the universe and he made us in his image but we sin, we make mistakes, and we try to be in charge of our own lives. But this, but this separates us from God. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus down to earth to die on the cross so we can be forgiven for our sins. That's awesome. I want to invite the band to come up, actually, if you guys can get ready. Um, and I'm going to ask you another question, Tom. Why is it that you want to be baptised today? Well, I believe all this about God and isn't just what my parents think, it's what I think. And I believe it too. And God has given me life and I know that in my heart that God has forgiven me for my sins and because of what I because of what Jesus did has done on the cross. 
I feel that God is calling me to be baptised to show others that I believe as a symbol that God has forgiven me and because I want to live for God and with him in, my, in charge of my life. That's awesome. Okay. So, Tom, we're going to make our way down there. Yeah. If you want to give the mic to Marianne and to Kathy, and they're going to pray for him afterwards, and they are his kids' church leaders. Isn't that beautiful? Um, I'm going to get changed into some board shorts um, while we sing a song, and then uh, we'll celebrate the baptism. We can have those up on the screen. All right, Tom, do you believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins? I do. Do you agree that Jesus is the Lord of your life? I do. And will you do your best with the help of the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus. I will. Great. All right. Next slide.
by your confession of faith and at your request, I baptise you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for Tom, that he's your child and chosen and loved by you. Thank you for his life, um, for his love for you and his great hunger to know you more and to live his life for you. We are so grateful to have him as part of our church family and for all the blessings that he brings um, to our family here. Lord, we want to pray for your presence, your protection and for perseverance for Tom. We pray that he will never have a time of not being aware of your presence, that you will be real to him always, that you will continually reveal yourself to him in ever-expanding ways, that your spirit of wisdom and revelation will reveal yourself to him so that he will know and love you better, that the eyes of his heart will be enlightened so that he will know the hope to which you've called him. I ask that Tom will be deeply aware of your power in his life, your strength in him that he may know that your power is above all rule and authority in this age and in his days to come, that you will strengthen him in adversity and guard his heart in you, that you will give him grace to answer wisely and confidently of the hope that he has in you. I pray, Lord, that when Tom's tempted in his walk with you, when he doubts you or your goodness, when he's tempted to stray from you, that you will strengthen him to stand firm in the faith that he is so proudly stating today. Give him courage and grace in a world that does not know you and that outwardly rejects you. Empower him to be light and salt in this world. Strengthen him to run the race set before him. May he fix his eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. May he consider you, Jesus, who did not scorn the shame of the cross but endured opposition. And in considering you, may he not grow weary or lose heart. May he struggle against and resist sin. May he be comforted with the assurance of your grace, forgiveness and love for him. And may he live in the joyful hope of seeing you face to face. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. I will have 